the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Hello, happy Tuesday to you. It is the first day of December. Final month in the year that wow, wow, we. Um, even though we can't gather together, I suspect there's nevertheless going to be one doozy of a New Year's Eve celebration to uh, to bury this one deep, huh? Well, anyway, we welcome you to this edition of Lifeline. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., Craig Roberts in your ear to keep you company tonight, get you home safe and sound wherever you might be headed on this Tuesday evening. Much to discuss, some good news tonight, and wow, couldn't we use a little bit of that? By the way, as we get started tonight, just a quick uh, historical reminder, pivotal moment in the civil rights movement happened exactly 65 years ago today. It was on this date, December 1st of 1955, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Parks had been seated in the first row of the black section of a bus there in Montgomery. When the white driver demanded that she give up her seat, she refused to do so and was jailed for violating the, quote, city racial segregation laws, close quote. Her jailing led ultimately to the Montgomery bus boycott organized by a young minister by the name of Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. That year-long boycott eventually led to the Supreme Court striking down the Alabama state and Montgomery City bus segregation laws as being in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, in many respects, pivotal, pivotal in igniting the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks, showing that sense of defiance, standing up for the Constitution 65 years ago on this date, December the 1st of 1955. All right, speaking of standing up for constitutional rights, there has been a decision handed down that can have a rippling impact. While it's a case that's related to New York, it can indeed have a rippling impact all the way out here to California. You know that we have been following the story of Calvary Chapel in San Jose, where our good friend Pastor Mike McClure is senior pastor there. They, in a number of given weeks here since the early fall, have amassed over $350,000 in fines by the county of Santa Clara. Likewise, our dear friend, Dr. John MacArthur, host of Grace to You, that precedes this program. And, of course, he, the senior pastor at Grace Community Church in Simi Valley, also facing unprecedented triple-figure, I should say six-figure fines, all on the same basis, all for the same reason, in relationship to public gatherings. Well, the Supreme Court has now weighed in. And as we get a sense of what this is going to 
mean nationally. We're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, counselor as always. Great to have you with us. Well, thank you. It's great to be on the program. This uh, this decision certainly um, demonstrates what a difference an appointee can make. There had ironically been a couple of cases that went before the high court earlier this year in relationship to restrictions on gathering as they impact houses of worship. In those two previous cases, when Justice Ruth Gator Binsberg was still on the high court, um, decisions ran contrarian to First Amendment rights of churches, but not so in this case, as they say, what a difference one justice can make. Tell us what happened. Uh, major difference. Uh, President Donald Trump's appointment of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court is already uh, shaking things in a great way. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that uh, Governor uh, Cuomo's uh, uh, restrictions on churches limiting them to only 10 or 25 people, no matter how large the church is, uh, is unconstitutional. It's a violation of their First Amendment free exercise uh, rights to worship. Uh, and the court went even farther than that, though. They said that, they said, look, if uh, it's a temporary restraining order, so it's not permanent, but it, they really made it clear where they stand. They said, look, um, if government is going to allow businesses or some other entity to have uh, less, less restrictions, uh, like an airport, for example, there's you can pack an airplane. Then churches are entitled to that same level of freedom and liberty because they are protected by the First Amendment. This is a game changer, Craig. Uh, this is what we at Pacific Justice have been litigating for, been waiting for, and it's uh, fantastic that we filed a major lawsuit. I alluded to this last time I talked. A major lawsuit just a few days before this decision against Santa Clara County and Governor Gavin Newsom. And what we are arguing is paralleled with what the Supreme Court said in this in this other case. So um, I see a big light at the end of the tunnel. We're on the offense, and uh, I'm very optimistic we're going to see governments capitulate, at least when it comes to the outrageous shutting down of churches. Part of this, of course, is based on a pretty significant imbalance is to how these regulations are being managed, handed out, and enforced. For example, in this particular case, in relationship to uh, the New York governor's mandate, they're using, similar to California, a color tier system. Um, governor had put a order in place requiring that churches um, be limited in their capacity, not even necessarily related to the physical size of the building, per se, and thus occupancy capacity, but rather just simply based on the category that they fell in. So suddenly a church that otherwise might be able to accommodate in a normal Sunday morning worship service, 1,250, 1,500, 2,000 people are now being told, you can have 10 people and no more, uh, which equates to something of not just six-foot distancing, but something like 600-foot <laughs> distancing, Uh, ironically, up against other businesses that they put in the, quote-unquote, essential category. And I suppose that we can parse words here, and everybody's going to have a different opinion. If you are currently a patient receiving acupuncture, you'll probably see acupuncture as an essential service. Many others, however, do not. Amongst that list include not just acupuncture facilities, but campgrounds, garages, 
manufacturing plants that produce chemicals, and even um, plants that manufacture microelectronics. Again, it just seems to be odd groupings here, who winds up in what category, and that, and I realize from perhaps a an enforcement standpoint, this can become a nightmare when it's based on certain criteria that varies from uh, city to city or varies from uh, building or venue to venue. So the church that can normally accommodate 1,200 might have a different total safety occupancy rate based on social distancing than versus, say, a church that was built to only accommodate 250. So I get the challenges that are in there, but even with the challenges, it doesn't really give the government the ability to therefore negate the enforcement of the First Amendment right, does it? Did we lose him, or was that a boring question? (laughs) He thinks we lost him. All right. Put another nickel in, in the Nickelodeon. There we are. We have you, Brad. <laughs> I'm, back. I'm back again. Somehow we got cut off. Or some, that was weird. Yeah, I, I think but, we just uh, we had to feed the meter over here. Go right ahead, Counselor. Yeah, but um, you're absolutely right. The, the court made it clear, effectively, that churches are essential. How's the worship are essential. Uh, and I could even argue that that could easily carry over and apply to private Christian schools, Christian camps even maybe Christian universities. And uh, that's why we're, we're having a big, uh, important Zoom call this Thursday at 2 p.m. Uh, we already have um, a large number of churches and pastors and, and leaders who have RSVP'd. Um, but this is very important because this is a major game changer, and I believe that we will have, effectively we will have churches having indoor services throughout the United States on a pretty massive level, uh, fairly quickly. Los Angeles County uh, Public ha- uh, Health Officer just came out with new rules saying churches no longer restricted uh, hands-off. They have constitutional rights. And that's the same the same agency, that same officer who has fined a church $2,000 for having an outdoor service. They now have switched because they realize they have writings on the wall. The Supreme Court's made it clear uh, this is a great day to celebrate, but we need to be diligent to make sure make sure churches know their rights and can take advantage of it. So it's uh, this Thursday at 2 p.m. They can register at pji.org, pji.org. Counselor, this begs, of course, a number of questions, not least of which that we can, um, but should we? There's question one. And then if you can stay with us around the corner here, uh, because I don't want to cut you off, Brad, there are a couple of interesting cases that I alluded to at the start of the show that I think our listeners would have a tremendous interest in hearing your professional opinion on, specifically relating to fines totaling well north of $350,000. I mean, that's well out of the chump change category, to be sure, in relationship to penalties that have been handed out at Calvary Chapel in San Jose, um, where there they've gathered apparently 600 more in account without social distancing or masks. County of Santa Clara has come in and handed severe fines on the church that have amassed to more than $350,000. And then, of course, we're all aware of what happened down at John MacArthur's church in Simi Valley there at Grace Community Church, where not only have they handed out fines to the church, but they maneuvered to essentially terminate a lease agreement that the church had for a next-door parking lot 
a parking lot that the church has been leasing from the county of Los Angeles for more than 50 years, simply being punitive in their action toward the church for no good reason. We'll talk about that and more our conversation with Brad Dacus, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, continues after this. Let's get your traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, updating us on the um, over-the-weekend Supreme Court decision handed down concerning regulations on churches out of the state of New York and a positive ripple effect across the country, undoubtedly affecting a number of uh, pending lawsuits of churches that have been facing just this challenge, extreme fines for meeting, et cetera, et cetera. While it certainly provides welcome relief from a First Amendment standpoint, uh, one quick question before we get into a couple of particular cases, counsel, and that is, I understand now the notion that we can meet, but doesn't it still beg the question, should we? And Are there layers of potential liability that a church faces if, as the allegations have been brought forward by public health authorities, that churches have gathered, they've not paid attention to social distancing regulations, they've not paid attention to things like insisting that every congregant wear face masks, as a result can potentially become so-called super spreader events, and if so... Does that open the possibility of any layer of of pushback? Can somebody come back six months later and say, I lost my husband to COVID-19 because he went to church and they weren't requiring face masks, therefore the church is legally responsible? Is there a level of liability like that? And if so, how do churches best protect themselves? Well, that's a great question. Uh, First, let me just say this decision from the Supreme Court is only legally binding on New York. Um, it, it's going to have ripples. Uh, the states realize the Supreme Court's position, so we're going to see capitulation on their, their strict policies against churches meeting indoors. That said, you hit a really good point, Craig, in that um, there is potential liability, particularly uh, when, we, it's, in fact, it's not binding on other states. So if it's still technically illegal, um, there is an issue there. But also, uh, just in general, uh, liability um, you know, that's why we at Pacific Justice Institute came out with a 96-point checklist for churches and private schools to utilize uh, to be able to open in a way that is safe and protected. It's, you have the legal liability issue that could come into play, which if churches are, are sloppy. But you also have um, tremendous political ramifications, and uh, if, if the society is able to say those church people are sloppy— they're not distancing at all. They're not wearing masks at all. They're not sterilizing. Um, it, it, it opens the door from a terrible PR and testimonial perspective that churches really need to be sensitive to um, and moving forward, including those churches that are, are presently uh, being, uh, being sued and challenged. Understood. Now, let's talk about the churches that have been under the extreme pressure by local counties and have amassed these significant fines. And I I don't know if you're representing either of these. If you are, I understand that there may be limitations in terms of what you can share. But your heart has got to go out to a church like Calvary Chapel in San Jose, for example, facing $350,000 north 
in fines there. And I mentioned uh, John MacArthur's church, where not only have they faced fines, but then the city, in a purely retaliatory fashion, at least in my uh, humble <laughs> legal opinion, uh, turns around and, 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 and seeks to nullify a 50-plus-year-long lease on a piece of land, a parking lot the church has been using for over five decades as just sort of punitive punishment. What about these two cases? Yeah. Um, let me just say that I, I, my heart goes out to both of them. Uh, we have another case in Santa Clarita representing some churches, Santa Clara County right now representing churches, uh, that, uh, is, that is similar. But what, what, what these churches need, churches need to recognize is that, um, that I think they're going to prevail uh, in the big sense because of the direction the Supreme Court's taken. I think the attorneys on the other side have to recognize that. The action L.A. took, the retaliatory action, regarding the leasing of the parking lot, uh, that is begging for a challenge of state hostility to churches and to them because of their faith and their convictions and carrying out their convictions. Uh, that's unconstitutional uh, action by the state. So I think they've got a strong defense. Uh, I do believe, though, that churches who do reopen in, in violation of what this, the local city says, and even in, in, in light of the Supreme Court case, that they are wise to take preventative precautionary measures for health and safety. Um, courts haven't held ever, they've never held that churches are exempt from health and safety codes when it comes to uh, where you know doors are placed, emergency exits, you know, fire safety, etc. So they're, they're not immune from health and safety requirements. It's just the government can't be uh, punitive towards churches. They can't gang up on churches and give them more restrictions than others. And that's what the, the real rub here is, is the fact that government is more restrictive on churches, like you said, only 10 or 25 people versus other places. Uh, churches can, will have a defense. They can say, you know, if they don't have social distancing, they can say, look, um, airplanes, uh, this, this county airport here in, in uh, Santa Clara County, they don't have any distancing requirements. Uh, if that's the case, how can you put those on the church? That's a very strong defense. Uh, they don't require masks, then that can be used as well. But most places are do require masks. The government has required masks. So at the very least, the bottom line is churches need to meet at the very least the, the, the most uh, minimal requirements that are being implemented by everyone that the government is implementing to, uh, to everyone. And that, if that means wearing face masks, um, as a general rule, that, that's a, a good point uh, to, for them to uh, respect for liability reasons and for winning in their case in court. You mentioned before the break uh, regarding the upcoming conference call that's going to be available this Thursday at 2 p.m. For folks that might have missed that, can you just reiterate the value of what you're going to be offering? Yeah, uh, I encourage them to contact their pastor and their church and have them on that call because we're going to talk specifically of what where we are now because of the Supreme Court decision and the rights of the churches to be able to reopen not just an outdoor service, but an indoor service in states across the country, like New York and California, et cetera, uh, that have been very, very hostile. This is going to be a very liberating Thursday Zoom call. So, uh, and very empowering and very liberating. Those are the two best descriptions I can come up with. Um, and uh, we have a, a limited number that can sign on to that call, so I encourage everyone to particularly make sure that someone from their church, uh, you know, executive pastor, someone is on there to, to uh, appreciate. Also, private Christian schools, 
they should be on as well, um, as well as Christian University directors. Uh, this is uh, this is a game changer, a big game changer, Craig. And we at Pacific Justice here are going to be making the most of it, both informationally as well as uh, new aggressive litigation strategies, uh, along with the one we just filed uh, in against Santa Clara County and Governor Gavin Newsom. We have a very strong case. And we're very optimistic, especially in view of what the Supreme Court came down with. And then when it's all said and done, we can all go to the French Laundry to celebrate. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, the business, and the restaurant owner who put up a big sign renaming his, his restaurant the French Laundry in Southern California. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just to, to say, you know what? I'm reopening, and if it's good enough for that one, it's good enough Why for Why not? Friend. And then in the news so, today, apparently Mayor Breed uh, actually showed up. It wasn't as quite a large a crowd. It was only eight in attendance as, a, as opposed to 12 the night before with the governor. But at the very same table at the very same restaurant, the next night, showed up San Francisco Mayor Breed, another one who apparently lives by the motto, don't do as I do, just simply do as I say. Unbelievable. There's Brad Dake, his constitutional lawyer. You can sign up for that call again this Thursday, 2 o'clock. You do need to register in advance by going to pji.org. That's pji.org. And our thanks to Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. I do want to say one thing. As we see changes taking place in relationship to the court's now stepping in and applying a, shall we say, greater uh, sense of parity to laws when it comes to public assembly, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I've heard some ridiculous comparisons to, well, you know, how can they allow a liquor store to be open and not a church? If somehow to suggest that 250 people gather in a liquor store for two and a half hours or two hours and sing and share communion together without masks. I mean, come on. If we're, going to, if we're going to compare apples with apples, let's do that. But at the end of the day, even as we celebrate our constitutional freedoms and protection and restoration of same through uh, what appears to potentially having a, a ripple effect across the country uh, on the heels of the New York case decision, let's be eager to also remember something Matthew 22 reminds us, as the question was posed to Christ as to what the greatest commandment was, to which Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You don't want to wear a mask. You find it inconvenient. You find it troublesome. You find it bothersome. You don't like the way you look in it then don't wear it for yourself. Wear it because you are complying with the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor. If you don't care if you get COVID and pass away, don't agree with you. I think it's akin to committing Harry Carey, but if that's your choice, so be it. But at least show concern for others. Wear the mask. Enough said about that. 533 traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
All right. Well, I told you at the top of the program that uh, we were going to focus on uh, more good news today than the the usual bout of uh, negativity. And so, uh, true to form, we continue the discussion. Brian Johnston now slips into our um, telephone conversation here, our, our roundtable conversation. Brian, of course, is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He is also the host of Life Matters, a program that comes your way every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. It is indeed a, a destination tune-in program where you can get all the latest news on the pro-life front. He gets a chance to go into great depth, and you'll find, I think, the information not only interesting and compelling, but also extremely informative. That's Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. But at this point... Brian joins us on this uh, post-Thanksgiving Tuesday to give us an update on a decision handed down by the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals regarding the state of Tennessee and abortion regulations. And, Brian, great to have you with us, and this is good news, certainly, indeed. It sure is, Greg, and thank you for giving me that opportunity. So often we talk about the difficult world we're facing but it's important to recognize that this decision now is going up the ladder and the significance of the Tennessee measure. The Tennessee measure prohibits abortions that are knowingly done because of the gender, the race, or the physical condition specifically if it's known. And there are tests that determine if there's Down syndrome. And if that is the reason the abortion is done, it's prohibited in the state of Tennessee. What you have to understand is why this is so powerful when it comes to Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. People don't really fully appreciate that what Doe versus Bolton instructed. Again, in Roe v. Wade, there's a big description of pregnancy and the different trimesters and blah, 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 blah. But in Doe versus Bolton, the companion decision came down the same day and had the same weight of Roe v. Wade. In Doe versus Bolton, the Supreme Court, Justice Blackman, who wrote both, he gave instructions to the abortionist that the abortion could be done for any reason or no reason in particular. There's no medically indicated reason. And that's the law of the land. And let me explain why. He explained, oh, sometimes it's up to the doctor. But in the doctor's opinion, this may affect the life or health, yeah, he says this equals the life of a woman, but he explains what he means by health and gives instructions, if by health, what he means, and he spells it out. It's not for hard cases. By health, it's the physician's opinion regarding the sociological health, the emotional or psychological health or anything related to the woman's marital status, family status, or her age. This constitutes the woman's health. Close quote. It's basically psychobabble, but remember, it's in the physician's opinion. So there doesn't have to be objective medical facts. That's what allows late-term abortion. You won't find late-term abortions in Roe v. Wade. You won't find selling baby body parts like plant therapy does at any time or shopping for these organs. People go, how is this possible in a row? No, no. It's done under Doe versus Bolton, which people don't recognize that the license to kill 
is based on whatever the abortionist feels would be appropriate. And since this person is hired to kill the baby, they're going to find a reason. Well, obviously, we're going to do abortions. And, well, maybe this woman, maybe in two years, she won't like having a two-year-old running around. She won't be able to handle it. So even the abortionist conjecture, it's in his opinion. That is in Doe v. Bolton. It's an explicit definition of health. That is what has allowed abortion on demand. What the Tennessee law does, now it's going up, as you pointed out. This is good news. The Sixth Federal Circuit has said this should stand. Now, is it going to go to the Supreme Court? We're going to find out. But this explodes the idea that an abortionist is free to kill that baby because it's in his medical opinion about the meaning of health. That's what's going to bring down the abortion monster that Roe v. Wade and Doe versus Fulton created on January 27, 1973. And, you know, the slippery slope here, you know, whenever we get into, and we saw this, Brian, in the very beginning with these exceptions for the quote-unquote health of the mother that were never clearly defined, that could be left open to interpretation, everything from the physical well-being, which we certainly understand, to the economic or emotional well-being, which can be so broadly interpreted to essentially provide a scape hatch, a, a, a way out under any set of circumstances. And, and, and this seemed to be the same case here, where if you have the attending physician uh, rendering opinion based on what he feels, well, once again, you know, I feel that this is in the best interest of my patient. And because there is a financial interest here as well, really doesn't necessarily put the the best interest of the patient uh, to do no harm uh, front and center. Sadly, we have seen such a shift away from the Hippocratic Oath uh, under the weight of uh, Roe versus Wade over the last 40-plus years that, that those kinds of protections all fall by the wayside, absent very clear, very strict uh, definitions inside of the law. That's right. And so now the clarity of the Tennessee measure that says, nope, you can't use these reasons. You can't kill a baby because you don't like uh, Down syndrome. And by the way, anybody who knows Down syndrome children be the most lovable kid you'd ever want to meet. But they're not fashionable. It's not cool. And we live in a culture that's willing to dispose. There are many Europeans. I was in Iceland quite by accident a couple of years ago. I had to stop off flying to Ireland. And in Iceland, they were very proud that there's no Down syndrome in Iceland. And the reason is you test every pregnancy. You kill them. You kill them. We, we stamped out birth effects. Well, wow. That's, uh, it's pretty scary. So we have a, a culture that believes in killing those who are medically depend, dependent or who are somehow less perfect than us. And then also, as it says in Tennessee, because of their race or because of the gender. It's very common in Eastern societies, but also now in America, that they don't want to. If you're only going to have one kid, as was fashionable in China, well, you don't want to have a little girl. You want to have just a little boy, and that was going on. And apparently it still goes on in some East Indian cultures.
social communities, even those that live in that country, if they're going to have one child, then by all means they want to pick the gender of that child. So Tennessee has declared under state law, we're not going to see abortion used that way. The federal court of appeals, the sixth district said, that's a good law. And now, so that, that just happened on the 30th. This is good news right now during the spiritual battle we're in. We're in a spiritual battle right now. And, and let me have you pause on that point, Brian, because I want to take a quick time out, but I, I don't want to cut you short. Uh, if you can linger with us for a few more minutes, because there's a broader question here that relates to the very heart of what you just mentioned that I think we need to uh, sort of lay bare for listeners. Because oftentimes I will get email and listeners will say, you know, eh, you conservatives, you pro-life people, you tend to be so narrow-focused, so narrow-minded on, on these issues. Why don't you just let settled case law under the Supreme Court be settled case law and be done with it? Why do you have to meddle in such things? Why, why do you see so much danger in abortion in America, free and unfettered? And Brian, I think, can illuminate uh, quite clearly the reasons why when we come back after the break. It'll be educational, so stay with us. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. We're talking about the decision by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals to uphold Tennessee's law banning abortions performed because the child is simply of the wrong race, or the wrong gender. What more? We'll find out more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've asked Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee to linger for a couple of moments. We were just talking before the break about a decision handed down by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals upholding Tennessee's law that bans abortions performed simply because the child has been diagnosed as a boy when you wanted a girl or vice versa, perhaps of a race, maybe a boyfriend in the mix for a short period of time, no longer inside the picture and Suddenly, decision was made, nah, don't want that. And, uh, of course, that also includes children diagnosed with Down syndrome. And, you know, the broader question that's often raised is, well, why do pro-life people harp away at these issues? I mean, can't we just allow women a few of these choices and be done with it? But I have to wonder, for the point of, of educating listeners, Brian, isn't there a broader more significant slippery slope here that once we permit the wholesale use of abortion for things like sex selection, race selection, or even to try and quote-unquote weed out what is perceived by some, not all, by some, as defects, defects in a child, that we could potentially move ourselves into that very dangerous spot that was promoted by the likes of Margaret Sanger and even Adolf Hitler. Am I wrong? Well, it's, we're already there. And so that's part of the, the problem that people don't recognize, is that really what Roe and Doe, these twin decisions, that's what took place in January of 73, struck down all of the laws that existed in all of the states. Every state, even California, had laws that if somewhere along the line, even though abortions were allowed, they were tightly regulated and controlled by contrast. 
And after 20 weeks, they weren't allowed at all whatever reason you came up with in California. That was struck. Every state laws were struck. And this is a significant issue. Don't think of the abortion. Think of the medical profession. This was the highest tribunal of Western civilization giving instruction to the medical profession. We want you now to be free to kill human beings whenever you feel it's appropriate. That's the rule of medicine now. So one of the things, and we already have said that as as a nation, that government does not give you your life. Government is here to protect your life, first and foremost. Government has a job, but it didn't give you your life. And doctors don't give you your life. But now we are looking at a cultural situation where it's not just that they are doing certain things, they're life takers. When a physician becomes a life taker, now the right to life has been caught in question. And I'll be honest, Dave, you mentioned before, I didn't really come into this movement through the abortion issue. I was involved in nursing homes and with the elderly and with those who are medically dependent, and I saw this. We were already dismissing the significant, well, that's a less significant person. Oh, look at that person. They're a quad. I would never want to live like that. I'd kill myself. That cultural value is incredibly broad in our culture. We're really happy to be Californians. We're tanned and we're rich and we drive around and we're really glad and God wants us to be happy. No, there's deeper issues at stake. And when medicine is authorized to kill those who are vulnerable, we haven't done it to a slippery slope. That's the precipice. January 22nd of 73 was the leap off a precipice. Up until that date, in Western civilization, medicine has been dedicated to care for, and if they could not cure, to comfort those in their care, but never kill. January 22nd, 1973, the highest tribunal in the most powerful nation on earth made a declaration. That was the turning point. The fact that it's babies are involved, yeah, I, I care. Yeah, babies are I like babies. But that shouldn't be the reason we're concerned about what happened, because babies are cute, and they're likable, and gosh, why don't we get diapers? Why don't we have... That, those are all wonderful things. But we actually had alternatives to abortion before Roe. There's quite a few people, you know, you know, Newt Gingrich was adopted. He was born before Roe. There's quite a few people. Oprah was the product of rape. She was born before Roe. The fact is, is that we have always, as a culture, cared for the most vulnerable. And when that's being used to, to, to justify medical killing, that's a terrible reasoning. But the real issue is medical killing. The issue at hand is that medicine is being used to kill vulnerable human beings. And if you don't understand that, then you've lost track of what civilization's been built on. And it's the reason we condemn Nazi Germany. We don't condemn Nazi Germany for invading France and Germany. Well, if you're French... <laughs> so you're French, you do. <laughs> and Belgium and Polish, and on and on those goes. But the real issue were the crimes against humanity against their own German citizens, and that's why we had the Nuremberg trials. And there were specifically Nuremberg medical trials. And it's a shame that our 
histories don't remind us of that. The 1947, the Nuremberg medical trials were very, very clear, and they didn't start on killing Jews and gypsies and Poles. They started actually before that, 1933, by killing those who were medically dependent. And that practice, that's how they had, they were in debt as a country. They, they hated the rest of Europe because World War I had crushed Germany economically. They had lost the war. They had all sorts of World War I deaths, mustard gas that they were caring for in their nursing homes for vets. And they, they were called by some people in the culture, needless eaters. We've got to save money. Why are we keeping them around? Who'd want to live like that? So out of compassion, they basically put them to sleep like you would a dog. And that was medicine. They decided to do that. Well, that's why we had to put them on trial. We didn't put them on trial for invading Poland. We probably should have, because then we also would have put on trial the communist Russians, because they started the war, too. They invaded Poland. That's another issue. But in terms of what Nazi Germany did, it was the use of medicine as a killing implement. And that is what has violated our Western civilization's values. And if you're inured to that, if you don't care, then it won't matter that elderly people are the number one, as with Governor Cuomo and our governor of California, they sent COVID into nursing homes. Then all they did is, you know, they polished the brass in the nursing homes. They didn't give any treatments to those patients, the most vulnerable patients. They didn't give them any, and there were available. If you really researched COVID, there were things that could have been done to help the immune system of those elderly. And yet that's where most of the deaths are. And if you're not aware of that, that's what's going, yeah, a lot of people have died from COVID. And it's the most vulnerable. And medicine has always sworn because it's medicine that cares for the vulnerable. And so medical ethics has said, look, we're always dealing with the most vulnerable and we're always going to be under pressure. So we're going to swear we're never going to kill the vulnerable. Yeah, and, and sadly, though, we've seen just the opposite um, happen. And, you know, let me be clear in saying that outside of the intentionality of abortion, you brought up the issue of COVID. I don't know that anybody, I hope nobody, has intentionally allowed the most vulnerable in our communities to succumb to this. But there's been a lot of very sloppy attitudes, and I think we're still reeling from the horror of the statements made by the lieutenant governor of Texas that basically suggested, well, you know, they've They've done their time. They've lived their lives. Maybe it's time to just allow them to peacefully pass on, although death from COVID-19 seems to be hardly peaceful. And I got a gooder idea. You ever bother to ask them what they think? Amazing. Thank you for the update. Brian Johnston, more on these topics Saturday mornings at 11 a.m., on Life Matters, right here on AM 1100. Details on the web at californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. On this Giving Tuesday, we remind you, too, as you're thinking about your end of your giving and where to invest your hard-earned money for the sake of our nation and the good of others, consider a contribution to the California Pro-Life Council online at californiaprolife.org. Get a look at traffic. 